Last week uh, we had uh, the John Main Seminar for this year, which is our 25th anniversary year, with uh, Jean Benier in Trolley, the um, mother house uh, headquarters of Lache in France. And uh, Jean Benier, for the past 50 years, has been leading uh, Lache, which is a global network and family of communities and houses uh, composed of people with uh, intellectual disabilities, uh, mentally handicapped, who um, form community uh, in small houses with a group of volunteers, usually one-to-one -one in terms of numbers. And uh, it's a beautiful uh, concept, really beautiful uh, reality, uh, of course, has rescued many uh, people who spent sometimes many years in institutions uh, where they were not valued or not given the attention that they required and needed. And uh, Jean's um, insight and genius really was to understand the importance of these people whom society usually tidies away, out of sight, out of mind, uh, people we often find embarrassing to be around, we don't know how to deal with them, or even worse. And uh, his genius really, his spiritual genius, was to see the, the value uh, of um, people with this kind of handicap this kind of wound. And in the uh, experience of Lash, and we have a close relationship with Lash over many years, um, our two communities, um, in the experience of Lash, the volunteers often come, and John describes this with great psychological acumen, uh, volunteers often come thinking, well, this is good, I'm doing a good work. You know, I'm going to help these people. And uh, so they have a good image of themselves uh, helping these unfortunate individuals. And for a while, this is how they, they uh, progress and see themselves. But then after a certain while, the experience begins to work on the volunteers. And of course, they also begin to see their own handicap and it often brings out of them uh, aspects of their personality, uh, intolerance, anger and even violence uh, to, in their feelings towards the very people they thought they were, you know, they were God's gift to. So uh, the experience of being uh, with people with such severe handicaps uh, reveals to those who are caring for them really the equality, uh, the empathy, the, the true empathy that exists between them, the true compassion, we might say, that unites us who are normal and the caregivers with those who are in the... In the uh, group of the neglected or the 
uh, underprivileged or whatever. And I think uh, we can see uh, in this a, a truth, something of, of the being and the non-being that we were talking about today. Um, in the, under the Nazis, of course, the mentally handicapped, those with genetic uh, problems and lots of other people who didn't fit in to the vision of the master race and of what it was to be a glorious human being uh, were not only just quietly tucked away in institutions, they were systematically destroyed, uh, even before uh, the, the war, hundreds of thousands of um, mentally handicapped and physically handicapped uh, individuals were just exterminated. And there I think we can see non-being at work. That's a good example of the extreme form of non-being, which happens when we cannot see the value, true preciousness. It's a word that Jean Vanier uses quite a lot, the preciousness of our own woundedness. And I think in the experience of being, we see the value, the true value. We see our own true value and the true value of those with whom we are interacting or serving or being served by. And as a result of seeing the true value, we get our priorities straight. And once we've got our priorities straight, and everything, all moral judgment is really about priorities, most decisions are often about taking the lesser of two evils, we have difficult decisions, things aren't always black and white. Uh, so this sense, this innate sense, this instinctive sense of priorities is essential for, for moral behavior and for, for human, humane behavior, for humanity. And one of the, one of the uh, disturbing features we're very conscious of today is our conflict of values. We just have to look at the American presidential election or what's happening in international politics all the time or in our own, our own domestic politics. Values are mixed up. Fundamental priorities are um, confused and in conflict with each other. Uh, do we build walls against those uh, in need? Uh, do we see them as sort of vermin waiting to invade our clean houses? Or do we look on them with compassion? as human beings. And if we look at them with compassion, then, then how do we, in practice, uh, care for them? So, uh, so many of our values today are disturbingly inverted. And how does this happen? Not so much through terrible acts of evil. I think by the time you get to terrible acts of evil, like the extermination of 
with mentally or physically handicapped. Uh, you've had, you may have had some social crises, of course, which have disturbed the, the, uh, the body politic and the way people interact. Uh, we look at the idea of turbulence after meditation. But um, often it's a, a slow slippage. It's a slow, steady, slow, hidden slippage of values. I think we see this in our own lives. You know, from the beginning of a career to, say, the middle of a career, there can be a, 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 an erosion of priorities, of values, so that people end up um, giving... 90% of their attention, let alone of their time, you know, to their work rather than to their family. And uh, nothing is more important than success and so on. So, I think uh, the experience of being we were talking about today is really very, very much related to the quality of life in society, in our institutions, in our families, and in our own personal lives. Yeats, of course, had, had, had the great poetic insight into what, what was happening in, in society, a process that has continued for decades, of course. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world and the ceremony of innocence is drowned. I mean, this was after the First World War, which was four years of suicidal carnage, the most absurd and tragic uh, stupidity and level, and um, from which perhaps we've never, we've never really recovered. But this this... The, the drowning of the ceremony of innocence. I think we could say that there are certain things in life, certain practices, certain things we make time for, which have an innocent, an innocence about them. That means that they're not there just to make money, they're not there to win admiration, they're not ego-driven, but they are good in themselves. Uh, and it's not only meditation, uh, you know, art or music or sport done in the right way. But, you know, but even in those sort of ceremonies of innocence, like sport, we see the drowning of the innocence. We see, we see the corruption of sport. And that's you know, like the corruption of religious institutions that we've also seen and uh, in many other areas of life as well. So I think it's helpful maybe to, to reflect on how this experience of being relates to the, the values of our life and the actual priorities uh, of, our, of our lifestyle and our uh, behavior to others. And I think we could say that meditation is a ceremony of innocence. When we sit down to meditate, what are we doing? If 
we are doing it in the right way, and anything, you know, the Dalai Lama says, you know, once he, he sort of laughingly said, you know, in the West, people think that all you have to do is close your eyes, cross your legs, and um, relax, and you're meditating. Looks good, you know. So you could approach meditation in, a, in such a slack and self-indulgent way that uh, it's really, say, a false idea that you are meditating. Um, and you might be doing it just to enhance your own self-image. You could imagine yourself looking really good, really cool. Um, the, the image of meditation, I think, in our society is a little mixed. Um, on the one hand, you have sort of the Hollywood image is, is of a rather cool uh, individual, you know, in an expensive loft in New York, you know, meditating in perfect isolation from the turmoil of, around him, totally autonomous, totally in himself, you know, and so on. Um, that's one sort of image of meditation. And the other image, I think, is, oh, yeah, I'd love to, yeah, I'm interested in meditation, but you know, it's, it's a little, it's too steep a mountain for me to climb. And you know, you've got to go up to the Himalayas, you've got to, um, uh, too difficult, uh, too esoteric, and uh, not, not for me, not for ordinary people. And I think you'll, you'll even find some spiritual teachers who will say that in both in the West and in the East who will say that ordinary people can't meditate. It's not for the, the likes of us. So, um, what we're discovering, I think, as we, as we learn to meditate, and I hope this week will be part of that learning uh, process, is that meditation is a ceremony of innocence if we approach it much as we can in the right way and we are innocent about doing it and that we don't measure it, we don't um, exploit it, we don't uh, self-dramatize it but we allow the innocence of the experience of being that certainly is what being is, being is innocent, it's not pretending to be something it's not, it's like a child or an animal really, uh, it's not pretending to be anything, what you see is what you get, uh, there's no self-presentation, there's no audience when you're meditating, uh, and there's no admiration when you're meditating, you're just being, okay, without self-dramatizing. And then I think, uh, once that experience of being has become a little more clear through practice, then we can begin to see the relationship between contemplative experience, that's what being could be said to be, the contemplative experience, and society. And that when religion loses this contemplative experience, it slips into fundamentalism, into legalism, um, 
into an exclusively Martha mode of operating. Um, you know, the religion itself just becomes externalized, overactive, hyperactive, sort of in Christianity, Christian terms, becomes muscular Christianity, knocking out mystical Christianity yeah, in the boxing ring. But that's true of all of all religions as well when you when you actually look at how they operate at the grassroots level. And when society at large, or education, or medicine, uh, or business, becomes alienated, as Martha does in the story, from this contemplative experience, it makes a radical misjudgment. It then misjudges what being means. And uh, because you lose the sense of the value of being pretty quickly after you have lost the experience. Unless the experience is continually refreshed and you go back to it and it gradually it becomes more and more part of you, even through the storms of life. Uh, but unless you renew that experience, and that's what a daily practice is about, Unless you renew that experience, uh, it very quickly becomes just a memory and a concept, and then very quickly something that you forget. You don't recognize it anymore. So, let's um, prepare for meditation, and we'll look at some more texts. sometimes ask what's the difference between Buddhist meditation and Christian meditation and uh, I usually say one of the main differences is that in Buddhist meditation people don't cough as much as they do in Christian meditation and, there you go. that's exactly what you do you're supposed to clear your throat before meditating that's the practical advice so um, it uh, maybe also kind of releases any tension you have. And it isn't that, you know, uh, to sit still, John Main used to say, uh, sitting still as a during the meditation is uh, a going to teach you much more than you may imagine it could teach you. Because it's the first step, in many ways, the first step beyond desire. So you get an itchy ear there, and so you scratch it. Okay, feels nice. Okay, that's over us now, just sit still. But within a couple of seconds, you're getting itchy over here. And by the end of the meditation, you're like a monkey. So, uh, so now that doesn't mean if, if you desperately need to, you can't, but it's a good, it's a good, uh, 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 insight, I think, into the the stillness that we will read about in the Tao, in the Tao. 
stillness of the Tao is not only physical stillness, but it's a, the stillness of one's whole being, mental and uh, uh, physical, uh, which allows pure attention to happen. And um, when we pay attention to something, we focus on it uh, with a still steadiness, a steady mind. So, anyway, the stillness of body, uh, don't underestimate it. And that's one of the reasons why meditating in a group is probably useful, because we're, we feel a little bit more responsible for the silence and the stillness in the room. Remember your checklist again, your, your physical posture. A straight back. Feel the steadiness, the weight of your posture, your feet on the ground, your sit bones, your hands on your lap or on your knees. Relaxing the muscles of your face, your jaw. Closing your eyes lightly. Sometimes your eyes may open just very lightly during the meditation, that's okay, but probably better to start with them lightly closed. And be aware of your breath for a few moments. Which is a preparation for taking the attention off your thoughts. Then the mantra is a kind of little anchor that pulls you down to a deeper level of attention. And by depth here we mean simply really clarity. The word depth might scare us sometimes, but it simply means greater clarity, greater purity of perception. So then gently introduce the mantra Ma Ra Na Tha Ma Ra Na Tha Articulate the syllables clearly in your mind Listen to them as you say them Gently without force Simply without self-analysis Attentively, this is the, the work we're focusing on in this period. Humbly, without asking for anything or playing any games. And when the word slips away from you and you find yourself following a train of thought, you get caught up in some imaginary dream sequence. As soon as you realize you're imagining this or fantasizing that, good or bad, just drop it without hesitation. Just drop it immediately. If you're chewing over an old problem or anxiety, and even more, Drop it, 
and then gently return to the mantra without wasting any time on self-evaluation. Just innocently return to the mantra. And every time you return to that path, uh, you are strengthened. So the distractions, we'll talk about them later, the distractions actually have a value because they bring you back to this path and every time we return to it, as we return to the mantra, uh, we, we take a step forward, a step deeper. Ma, Ra, Na, 